Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. And I'm Simon. We are Nidip in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 159, recorded on September the 22nd, 2021. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on kneedeepintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. So we have a pretty full schedule for today because Simon is going to walk us through the roles of InfoSec and, and ITSec inside an organization. That's an interesting discussion in and of itself. We are going to be talking about a lot of new things from Power BI. There has been some interesting uh, new uh, certifications that really uh, shows Microsoft's dedication to hybrid. Kind of surprising. And there has been some interesting service news. Uh, Simon wants a new machine again. <laughs> but it's surprising, and it's, it's kind of hard to, to grasp, but it's been just over six months since Tony passed. Hmm. And and like I can honestly say that I think of him every single day. There are things every single day that reminds me of things he would have said or done, and we'll get into that when we talk about the certifications later as well. But um, it, it's been hard. It's been, I wouldn't say surprisingly hard, but it, it's, you, you never know how much you miss someone until you lost that individual. No, that's that's very true. And there there's the, the saying that time heals all wounds. And I'm not entirely sure that I agree with that. Um, some wounds won't ever heal. They will change. And the yep. feeling will change over time. But yes, it, it definitely, well, it, it sucks. It's It's been six months of missing Tony. And as you say, there's so many things out there that remind us uh, about him. I mean, I definitely miss a good rant. <laughs> A yeah, good and, and rant even, in Finnish. Exactly. And, and even though I'm rather good at ranting, Tony would are were able to do that with, I think, a sarcasm that were... I, I will never achieve that level. I don't think you will. I don't think I will either. And and sarcasm as a service, that was his, <laughs> his thing, really. But yeah. let's come back to... Tony in in just a bit because at first you're going to be talking about infosec and ITsec. Uh, the funny thing is that I was pretty sure that it was the same thing. So apparently I definitely need to be educated. So, good sir, educate me. Absolutely. I will do my absolute best. So let's start with that. What's the difference? Well, infosec as in information security consists of in general three different things personal security or personnel security physical security and it security because without those three you can't really ensure that your information is safe you can have the highest possible it security but if you don't do your background checks correctly it's likely that someone will get in that shouldn't have access and then it doesn't matter how much you have invested in it security same thing goes for physical security if if some like you can have the highest level of personal security and the highest level of um, IT security, but if your data center quotes fire, then your information is no longer available. 
which is part of information security. That, that, that kind of reminds me, I'm, I'm sure I've, I've told you this before, that my previous employer was super happy about this super cool, basically impenetrable is the wrong word, impenetrable is the word I'm trying to say, door <laughs> to the data center. Yeah. I mean, it, it was fantastic. The mm -hmm. issue is, well, the rest of the walls were plasterboard that I could punch through. Exactly. <laughs> so information security is about protecting uh, your information and also, of course, keeping it uh, accurate and keeping it available. And we'll get back to the role of InfoSec and IT security later on. But, but would you say that when you are out with your customers, how often do you interact with either information security or IT security? Well, I'd say that I interact with predominantly the the IT security or the well the the information security the the, the people that don't want to give me access <laughs> call them what you want very rarely do i talk to any kind of physical security it might be when i i'm getting a a, a batch for instance but apart yep. from that that is part of the the background so to speak so so you never have any like you never get asked okay is this something that is whatever you do consistent with the guidelines from info information security or it security very rarely and i find this to be an issue yeah because we have spoken about this so many times uh, that okay <laughs> when you work with data you basically have access to what some called uh, call the oil uh, the new oil in the world so i think that that should be uh, a, a valid discussion to have but let's get back to that so I interact almost daily with IT and InfoSec organizations. And I've found, and I think that some may agree on this and some won't, so I, I'm absolutely open to getting feedback on, on this episode, that we have a decision to make for IT and InfoSec organizations. Because as I see it, there are two different ways we can build and integrate an IT organi or IT security organization within the greater IT organization and the greater organization. It's either operational or supporting, where I tend to see a more efficient organization if you are a supporting IT organization rather than an operational one. And neither of these includes a SOC, so a security operations center or a cybersecurity incident response team. That to me is a completely different part. They can often reside within IT security or be a completely separate group within the IT organization. So this is more focused at other technical means or organizational means of IT security. So I think that again there are two different ways to do this operational would be a team that's that is technical like technical staff they are responsible for the it security related products processes and procedures they are part of projects initiatives and, and especially the operations but it belongs to an or an organization of its own and it's included as a product project member basically so we need someone from storage we need someone from networking we need someone from data we need someone from it security uh, and 
they can make their own decisions. They can say, yeah, we need an IT security product. We need a endpoint protection product that we will manage, we will operate. And therefore they should have the mandate to do so, as well as a budget of their own. Basically you give them an amount of money and they are then able to run the IT security within an organization. Of course, being a part, just as storage, hosting, networking, whatever, they should also be aligned with the general and overreaching IT architecture. But they really can't be overruled by anyone else in an IT security question. So even though you basically say, we know what's best for us to deliver on our goals, basically keeping the IT infrastructure safe. We want this product. And we have a veto to put in if someone else argues with that, because we are the ones that will be responsible for it, as long as it adheres to other architectural principles. I find that to be rather complicated, since IT security is something that's now part of every single decision you make you need to understand and care about IT security and you need to understand it. I I don't agree with that statement. Okay. It is not part of every decision. It should be, but it isn't. (laughs) Thank you for clarifying that. I think that was for for once a very good interception of of my always great speeches. Thank you, Simon. (laughs) So, I tend not to like this because it creates that divide between IT security and IT and as well uh, between IT security and the rest of the organization. I find this to be a disturbance in the force. The other way and the one I prefer would be an IT security organization that act more as an advisor, a supporting part of the organization. This role will have a focus on training, enablement, being those advisors, ensuring that whoever gets hired to any of the other teams within IT understands, again, the architecture, IT security in general, and so on. But they do not make any technical decisions, nor do they have mandate to overrule anything. They can, of course, advise leadership teams, IT architects, whatever, to make decisions, but they can't really have the mandate. And they should always, of course, be considered, because in in most organizations today, a wrong decision in terms of IT security may lead to rather challenging consequences. So instead of having that deep technical IT security approach in their own organization, they can, of course, be very knowledgeable. They can be the the top in terms of technology, but they should rather focus on ensuring that that knowledge is split between teams. So you have cross-functional teams there as well. See where this is going, right? <laughs> um, and again, that IT security is part of every decision that's made within the IT organization. So. They are there to support the full organization in all questions. They are advisors and they are part of setting the architecture 
the design, the strategies, and the design guidelines for the IT organization as a whole. And again, these are in most cases separate from a SOC or um, incident response team. But it, that, of, of course, also depends on how big the organization are. So it may be part of the group IT security, but I tend to see that they have very different focuses in a SOC incident response team and a more proactive IT security organization. So how does this resonate with you so far? So I'm, I'm trying to frame this with words that I, I kind of can relate to. And what, I, what I'm mm-hmm. hearing is the absolute key as is always the case, is trust. If you don't have trust in your security people, then having this, I wouldn't say hands-off approach, but slightly more subtle approach, they're going to be a tick in a box. You go to talk to them and say, yeah, hi, and then you're just off. You don't care about them. But Mm -hmm. if you have the trust, then that's a whole different kettle of fish. So it kind of feels not unlike what we try to do when we want to put in Uh, a BI reporting tool such as Power BI into an organization, you can't force these things down people's throats. They will object, reasonably so. But if you create a center of excellence, which, as you said, enables the people, then we have a whole new playing field. Suddenly people want to interact with the center of excellence or the security people. They want them to be part of it. They want to learn. And then I think you're you're on, on track um, I also know people, <laughs> yeah. and I see this, uh, let, let me rephrase that. This is an exceptional challenge, but yeah. if you sort it out, boy, are you going to reap the benefits. Absolutely. And I think like the reason why you, in my opinion, would like to do this is scalability and, and agileness. Because agileness, have, I think the word you're looking word. for is agility. I prefer agileness. I'm sure you do. Ag- agility then reminds me of my day as a level level 70 hunter in World of Warcraft. Uh, good times, good times. But looking at it, if you have an operational IT organization, IT security organization, all decisions related to IT security needs to be made within that group. And it doesn't have to be a large organization for that to quickly spin out of control. And it's hard to find good IT security folks, even these days. And what will they inevitably do when they get swamped? They're going to turn into full security Nazi mode and go, nope, can't do that. Nope, nope, nope. Whatever the question is, do you want coffee? Nope. I mean, yes. (laughs) Depends on it if it runs multi-factor authentication. The coffee? Yeah. I'll take it. Of course you should. Yeah, multi-factor authenticated coffee. That's the name of this episode. <laughs> I think it is, yes. Yeah, it, it, it runs Java. So oh, for IT for security's f- sake, it, it needs to be removed. Thank you for listening to this episode. <laughs> we are not sponsored by Oracle. I so want to edit that out, but I won't. <laughs> so, but if you have the supporting organization, it should be simpler for several parts of the organization to make their own decisions based on previously made or set up guidelines, therefore making them more agile and still 
adhering to the security principles that's been set up from the start. So moving back to information security then, InfoSec. Again, they should be setting out the high-level guidelines. So things like data classification that we have spoken about. How do we protect the data? And how do other groups ensure that IT security can do what they are best at? And then we have other functions within the organization that takes care of physical security as well as personnel security. And InfoSec is the... Usually they sit under a head of security in in many organizations. Uh, they are not a part of the IT organization because information can be in other places, behold, and in a data center <laughs> or at a hard drive or whatever. Uh, so they are the highest supporting organization of ensuring security, integrity, and availability of the data that's within the organization. They are rarely operative. They are basically, yeah, ensuring, again, training, enablement, advisory. If you don't get an InfoSec incident, which in GDPR times are fairly common, so where they need to take care of it, report it, evaluate what happened, and ensure that it doesn't happen again. Because again, like an InfoSec incident can be anything from, I actually heard that just this week. You send an email where you have all the recipients showing up. Yeah, that's leaking data. Yeah, information security incident, which needs to be handled one way or another. One way to handle that would be training. Another way would be IT security. So the takeaways from here, do you see how do you, IT and info sec- information security interact within your IT organization as well inside of your organization. Ensure to have that dialogue. How can we make this running more efficient and ensuring that everyone is pleased? Because as with parenting, regardless if you have children or cats, it's basically the same thing. Um, you may need to say no in some occasions and you are able to say yes the majority of the cases. But you also then need to understand how we can make that running more efficient. And if you say no all the time, I can tell from experience with children that it doesn't work. And I think you can say the same about cats. Yes, they will find a way. Yeah. And, and I'm I mean, saying yes that, is that, equally that bad. Is, that's a very, very good analogy because if your daughter comes to you and knows for a fact that she will never get any um, any okay from you she <laughs> will probably try her mother once yeah. or twice and then she'll just do it anyways yeah and and the mother in this case uh, if we continue this would be a higher level of management which can sit on top of the it organization and basically say yeah but we will do it this way because it's to the benefit of the business and to iterate something we have said i don't know how many times even IT and information security. Their only reason of existence is to support the organization so the organization can achieve their business goals. That's a very good point. And a very good way to end. I think so, yeah. So there have been a ton 
all new things coming out for Power BI. In, in fact, the uh, the September update just about dropped, and there are a lot of cool things. Um, I'm just going to go for three of them because otherwise we're going to be here all night. One <laughs> is the line chart series labels. It's not po possible to have a a label on your line chart. It, it makes it way easier to see what your what what data you're looking at. So you're basically taking the the legend of a line chart and putting it just beside the actual line. Now there are some uh, limitations. You cannot programmatically set that value yet. That is a new thing on on uh, ideas.powerbi.com. So definitely go in and vote for that because this this is just the first step. You can do so much more with this if Microsoft decides to um, to work on it. Um, speaking of working on things, last month there was a new way of expressing dates inside of DAX. Yes. And now you have what's known as a locale formatting. So you can actually specify a date as it would be displayed in Great Britain or in the Netherlands or in the US just by adding a specific string. So it's so much easier to yep. not only handle dates, but display them in the proper way. And one, one thing that I've been thinking about is um, to to use a setting, you pick up a setting from a, a database, for instance, for that specific user to change all the um, the locale views of your data or your dates of, based on a setting in a database. That 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 should be something. I'll I'll take a take a look at it. The Power BI connector for Power Automate is just gone. Generally available as well. That means that it is now supported in, in basically any configuration and there is no end to the shenanigans you can do with Power BI and Power Automate. I want to follow up on that as well, but I, I was first thinking, can when you set up a report mm -hmm. which consists of data and you want to make that localized to the user, can you use graph to add information of the user that's currently browsing the report or do you need to have it in the data set because how can you connect the user that looks at the data to the data that's a really interesting question and i would assume that it would be doable um i'm not entirely sure how to go about it but yes mm -hmm. the data is there and you can definitely pull that in as a data source mm -hmm. and then you if you you're creative enough, I'm sure you could do do things with it. So that's an interesting one as well. I'll, I need to look into that. Yeah. And and I think that, like, having failed, I will be very open with that, the Power Platform Fundamentals, <laughs> with one question, so I need to retake it. But again, it, it I learned a lot from doing it, and I definitely understand where I need to improve. Isn't, like, shouldn't the power... Oh, now, oh, now, the power integrations, if that becomes a product. <laughs> you heard it, it here it's first. It's my doing. Yeah. The power power platform integrations, shouldn't they have been there from the start? Well, yeah, you might say that, but don't forget the fact that there are so many different teams in Microsoft mm -hmm. doing so many things in parallel. And th this is what we see 
just about all the time that one team is leapfrogging the other team and somebody forgot to talk to the core team and then you're in a bit of a mess. And why don't we throw in a reorganization from time to time as well to just make sure that everything is flowing perfectly. So yeah, you're completely right. And no, it's not going to happen. There are more things. So last time we recorded, I didn't have time to go into that. And I'm just going to touch on it here. So there is something called automatic aggregations. We used mm-hmm. to have, or we still do, um, a way of, of adding aggregations to a, a table. So instead of Power BI needing to go to the source, you can aggregate the, the results from the source. Let's say that you have a billion rows, but just doing aggregates so that is going to give you way less data. And you can mm-hmm. put that into a table that gets cached into the service. And as long as you just want the aggregates, you're going to hit that instantly. And if you want to have the specific data, like in the case of the uh, New York um, uh, taxi data set, if you want to look at each and every driver, then you're going to hit the actual data source. That is a super powerful way of handling enormous amounts of data. I mean, when I, I did the trillion row demo, I, I asked people, how, how do you make Power BI handle a trillion rows? And the answer is, you don't. You cheat by doing aggregates. Now, what is entirely new and both scary and fantastic is that the, um, the product can automatically create aggregations for you. It can actually figure out and it keeps learning what to aggregate. You don't need to do squat. It's going to sort that for you. And yes, that's exactly the face that I made when I read that the first time. And when this came out um, a couple of weeks ago, there was basically no documentation that explained how things work. Now, that documentation has been updated. It is really good, and I'm sure there's going to be a ton more stuff added to it, but it is scary. Uh, Go play with it, because this will definitely change how you interact with large data sets. And another thing that is also just, I think it was yesterday or the day before that, came out in in uh, preview is the um, public preview of insights. So we used to have a function in the service that gave you the uh, opportunity to just point at a visual and go, uh, give me some insights. Think about this. Mm-hmm. And that's cool, but this is uh, quick insights for grown-ups because it's going to look at your entire report and it's going to do a lot of interesting things underneath the hood. And it's going to give you, yeah, dude, here you have a spike. And I think this is why you have a spike. And this interacts with this thing. You're outside of the normal bounds here. And for some of it, it's just going to be gibberish, I'm sure. But for a lot of it, you're going to get instant, basically free insights that might be extremely difficult for you as a human being to spot but this is the the um the beauty of well basically big data processing this is something that gets run on a premium um account or it's either a premium um, per user or premium capacity uh, it is super super cool uh, again it's it's in in preview and then we have the coolest thing like in recorded history, I think. <laughs> Next week, the week of the 27th, is the week that 
Power BI Premium is slated to get converted to Generation 2, which mm. does away with the whole, yeah, you're going to get eight CPUs and I can't remember how much memory, 24 gigs or something for a P1. Uh-uh. You're now going to be part of a shared environment, which can do so much more, much better performance. It can burst um, if you need a lot of performance for a short amount of time, for instance. And how would that affect pricing? Bursting? Yeah, bursting, scaling. Yeah. So the beauty here is, the the point is to make sure that you have the capacity you need to sort your workload and pretty <laughs> much handle payment later. So you're going to get a lot of power for a limited amount of time. Then Microsoft's going to tell you, you're, you're using this much, which is more than you're paying for. Either we're going to cap it or you can keep paying this amount to get what you need. Um, so I think that is a very neat way of, of solving the, uh, the issue. W wouldn't that be something, I, I understand how extremely complicated that would be, but wouldn't that be just glorious to get for any cloud service that you can set up your intended workload. You pay what you estimate, and then it will tell you that, okay, you consumed this much. And if it's bonkers high, you will be charged for just intentionally violating something. But that will give you like a, a buffer to say, okay, you thought that you would consume this much. You are now getting towards a point where you will cross that line and start consuming more. Either you accept that or you make your solution more efficient, cloud style. Yeah. Uh, the funny thing is I had this exact discussion with a colleague today. It is extremely difficult to budget things in Azure. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's yeah. the, the the name of the game. And this would be a way of not necessarily solving it, but as you say, giving you a buffer to yeah. not get these these kinds of surprises. I, 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 I hear people scream, yes, but you can use cost analysis and, and reports and, and alerts and crap. Yes, you can, but that's not the point. Um, th this would be a definite uh, good thing. And I, I'd love to see that come for uh, other aspects of Power BI as well. And um, I want to go back to Tony because Tony was the quintessential uh, Windows Server guy. I mean, that was what he did, pretty much. Uh, he did listen to, to um, Death Metal as well. But otherwise, I think it was predominantly Windows Server. And just like the database admins felt extremely left behind when Microsoft did the, um, the new round of, of certifications, the role-based certifications, they screamed bloody murder. Why is not there not a specific database administration certification? Uh, lo and behold, now there's DP300, uh, Database Administrator Associate, which is a great certification, but it took a long time. Microsoft has now done the same for Windows Server. And they are now part of ASET series. So the ASET 800 and ASET 801 administering Windows Server hybrid core infrastructure and the name of the 801... Windows Server Hybrid Advanced. Yeah. 
they are focusing on a, as it sounds, a hybrid Windows Server infrastructure running both on-prem and in the cloud, focusing on, like, the things we're used to. A, lo and behold, domain controller, multi-domain, security, group policy, um, and, and Windows Server. Like, but you also need to understand a bit about virtual machines and containers. So it's it's basically using all the bells and whistles within Windows Server and infrastructure as a service running in Azure and how you bring them both together. Do you know if um, Arc is part of that certification? Not what I've seen, but I must say the blog posts that have been published are likely some of the best exam prep I've ever seen this early in the process of an exam. It's hundreds of links on wow. every single topic that's covered. Did Thomas so Maurer did, do, do this one as well? No, um, Jeff Woolsey. So oh. I think Tony's house god. Yep. And Orin Thomas, yep. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I know that Tony would have been so happy to see this because this was right down what he always believed in. He was one of the first, I think he was the first person yeah, he was. I knew that had the ASET exam when that got out. Um, or the, um, what was it called back then? Uh, so first he, he was the first one to write the Windows Server certification in Sweden. I can't that remember too. which version it was, but it was one of the the, uh, the last Windows specific Windows servers. Yeah, that too. But he was also very early with the Azure exam at Ignite. Oh, right. Yeah, he yeah. did write a beta there. Yeah, exactly. And passed it and with he flying colors. That. Yeah. And, and like you said, he was one of the first Swedes to pass. Wasn't that 2012 R2 or 2012? 7210, right? Yeah, I think so. So I think this would have made him very, very happy. Uh, and I think he he would likely have, uh, this time he would definitely have dragged Jeff into this podcast <laughs> to talk about it. I know that he was one of his dream guests. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Speaking of which, we need we need to grab uh, Jeff Wolsey to get here. Yeah, that would be cool. And when it comes to dragging things... <laughs> That was a pretty good segue, I'd say, because it's surface time again. Yeah, and I'm rather good at dragging surfaces around. You are, I and say. I think they really hit the the um, nail on the head with the Surface Studio laptop because it's much, much more portable than the Surface Studio. It's the world's most draggable Surface with Studio in its name. There we go. So take us through, what, what did they do this time? I think I will actually start from the beginning because they started off with the new Surface Pro 8 as well as the other, so Surface Go 3 and updates to Surface Pro X. And lo and behold, Surface Pro 8 is the fastest Surface Pro ever. Is the Surface Go 3 actually usable? Yes, because oh. now it runs an actual CPU, not just something they found in a package of uh, cornflakes. That makes sense. That was really not the best way to put it. But uh, surprisingly it accurate, though. 
Uh, and I would say that, yeah, it's great. It, it's, it's a fantastic device. I absolutely love my Surface Pro 7 Plus. But other than the chipset and two USB-C Thunderbolt ports. So that which, means that it's a, a 11th generation Intel, right? Yes, correct. Right. Um, nothing is really new. It's it's small things. It's it's a real. And my first thought were, now Microsoft is having an iPhone moment. It's the same device as last year, but with a new chipset. Which and it doesn't even come of, in red. I would love a red Surface Pro. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But, like, Thunderbolt, fantastic. Performance gains, same battery time, fantastic. Um, yeah, that's actually new. A new Surface Pen, which is now with the haptic feedback. So you get, you should get the feeling of writing on paper. So it will actually vibrate just a little when you draw on the, the surface. Um, and it also have a 120 hertz display. Mm-hmm. I think that's new as well. And, and that should be really quite awesome to draw on, play on, and, and so on. Uh, they moved on to um, the Go 3, which again now have a, a new uh, Core i3 CPU. And again, nothing more than that. But I think it's, it's a reasonable upgrade. It's very focused on a specific group of users. They have new speakers, new microphones and so on but i think it's a rather good um first stepping stone into the surface ecosystem i may even have a few goes not the generation three though in a box downstairs that i will be doing workshops with the next week but like the pro series in all in all were yeah good but nothing other than that we then moved on to a surface duo 2 to the next Surface Duo, uh, which looks fantastic. Uh, the new Snapdragon 888 with 5G connectivity. That, of course, makes total sense. Um, and you get a new hinge, which is apparently the most, the best hinge ever made by Microsoft for any product. Um, and it has some neat features, better cameras, a glance mode so you don't need to open it to view your notifications um makes total sense looks fantastic the upgrade for 5g better performance and the camera are mostly the most noticeable changes and it's still freakishly expensive starting at just gonna 1, say 000, that yeah 1499.99 dollars <laughs> yeah, that's for 128 gigs. If you want to have 256 yeah. gigs, then you can... Well, that's a reasonable number. You're adding on a hundred bucks for a 256 drive. Yeah. And you're adding 200 to that for a 512 gig. Mm-hmm. And comparing this to Apple, this this is reasonable. Yeah, absolutely. So, looks fantastic. I'm still not... It looks fantastic. I would love one. But I'm kind of like my regular phone. I would much rather have like a Surface Go as my companion device rather than this. I do, however, like the dual screen aspect. Then a lot of the focus of today's Surface episode were around accessibility. 
and uh, climate. So they, Microsoft then introduced their Microsoft Ocean Plastic Mouse. Guess what it's made of? Uh, the ocean? Yeah, exactly. And plastic. Oh, and, oh, okay, right. Yeah. So it's, it's a mouse that's made of 20% plastic from the oceans. And the box it comes in is 100% recyclable. And yeah, it's, it's great that it's used by <clears throat> plastic that someone gathered from the ocean. That's, a, that's good from a climate point of view. But I would have expected more. Like, if you can make shoes and jackets out of 100% recycled plastic, like, come on, and, and a recyclable box. Yeah. Good boy. That, that, <laughs> exactly. Well done. Uh, they also introduced a Surface Adaptive Kit, making Surface devices more accessible. And, and I think it, like, just seeing that demo was quite astonishing to see how these tiny bits of plastic make such a huge difference if you have uh, like any kind of disability really like loss of sight or uh, having some kind of muscle disease or something like that it 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 really mind blowing and like they said and there they actually made a good point of it even the packaging is accessible so anyone should be able to be able to get that unboxing experience to make their devices more accessible. Now we're talking. That yeah. is cool. That is really cool. And I think that's, like, I'm impressed what Microsoft does for the environment and so on. But I think they're actually taking it, it one step further with accessibility. And I really do think that they fully-fledged care about making every device and every technology accessible and then the last bit and i think we're this out is of time again <laughs> one of the best again commercials for a surface product ever i had goosebumps and shivers and it's fantastic look at it they reuse that fantastic song which i now forgot the name of when they introduced the surface laptop studio it's the most powerful surface ever. Uh, and it's it's the next generation surface. Um, what's the name of it? Surface Book, basically. Yeah. Surface Book um, 4, basically. Yeah. So it's the 11th gen Intel Core H35 processor, a NVIDIA 3050 Ti. Yeah, it's an RTX. Which is extremely fast. And a fantastic screen, um, and the the fantastic thing about it is that you can make it into a huge tablet. In so basically, you combine a laptop format with the Surface Pro format, enabling you to put the screen in whatever angle you like, having it either in laptop mode, tablet mode, or anywhere in between. I know exactly who would love one of these. Who? Haney. You're right. The serial doodler um, would love this one. <laughs> I do think so. And and I want one as well. And it starts at almost the same price as the Surface Duo. <laughs> Not with that spec, of course. But um, you get again get the two Thunderbolt ports, a fantastic screen. For that price, you get 16 gigs of RAM, um, quad-core CPU, 
all of that. And I really, really like the form factor. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. Um, yeah. Th- this, so as I said before we started recording, th- this feels a bit like an iPad moment. Nobody yeah. needs to have the screen be able to do that. But I think everybody will realize that, dude, I've needed this for my whole entire life that I didn't know. Yeah, exactly. So I went from, well, they're doing an Apple event to, okay, they are still innovative. And they're they one-upping still... Apple. That's yeah, kind of cool. Uh, just It's not just one-up. Two-up? Seven-up. Se- <laughs> Sponsored by Pepsi. And we are actually out of time. <laughs> well done, Simon. Um, there's a lot of things happening at work for us both. We will have to shelve that and come back to that because as always, we find way more to talk about than we kind of expected. So that's it for this week. We'll be back in a bit until then. Have a great time. Thank you for listening and take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. Knee Deep in Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Abitzon and Simon Binder. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at needypentech.com.